Rami's Age Show, interviewing interesting people so people can learn interesting things. Here is your host, Rami Zaid. Hello, and welcome to the Rami's Age Show, where I interview interesting people so people can learn interesting things. My guest today is Rama Shaker of Norwest Venture Partners. Get ready for a very intriguing conversation about the venture capital world, what VCs really look for, common mistakes founders make when pitching a VC, how the future of the venture capital world will change, and more. There's a lot of life lessons in this conversation that you'll hear. Rama is honestly one of my favorites in the venture capital space, and you'll hear why in this conversation. So that said, here is my conversation with Rama Shaker. This episode is brought to you by Cleanse on the Go. I've been promoting Cleanse on the Go for many months now because I believe in it. A cleanse for me had nothing to do with weight loss, although it does that as well, if that's what you're looking for, but for me, more of a mental reset. The beauty of Cleanse on the Go is its mobility and flexibility as you have a one, two, or three-day option to cater to your needs and wants. As most of my loyal listeners know, I absolutely promote a healthy eating and exercise lifestyle, and I'm obsessed with all the different workouts on the Peloton. But I'm a single dad, two kids, I'm coaching my kids' sports teams and working 24-7, so to say I'm a bit busy is a ludicrous understatement. Cleanse on the go is super easy to use. They're just small packets you mix with water. These small packets can fit easily into purses or pockets and are great for travelers busy lifestyles, or for you super lazy a-holes out there that sit on the couch. (laughs) As listeners to the Rami's Aid Show, you can get 17% off your order if you go to their website, simply cleanseonthego.com, pick the cleanse you want, and under discount code, just type in my first name, R-O-M-Y, and you'll receive the 17% off. Do it. You'll love it. Now let's get back to the Rami's Aid Show. Rama Shaker, welcome to the Rami Zaid Show. Rami, it's great to be here. All right, Rama. So business career, you started your career out at Cisco Systems, and you've been a venture capitalist for almost 15 years. So we're going to dig in deep on the venture capitalist world. I'm going to break you down today, Rama, but the trumpet. So (laughs) I've heard that you're a trumpet player, been playing the trumpet your entire life almost, and would love to hear how in the world that started. Rami, first of all, it's a privilege and a pleasure to be here. I'm a big fan of the pod. You're right. I am a closet band geek. <laughs> I was not the quarterback of our high school football team. I was a uh, first year trumpet though. I like <laughs> and, it. There um, you go. I got into music because of my mom. My mom's mom was a classically trained veena and vocal teacher in South India and Bangalore many years ago. And my mom is still a practicing musician and plays the vena, which is a stringed instrument. And she got me into music at a very early age. And I found the trumpet because it was the loudest, most obnoxious trumpet instrument to play in the garage, which is where my parents forced me to practice. (laughs) It had a huge impact on my life. I met my wife through high school band and marching band, and we were high school sweethearts and she played the flute and I played the trumpet. We were playing Beauty and the Beast on the field and the trumpet line intersected with the flute line and the rest is history. So it had a huge impact on my life. 
I can't say I've kept it up recently after kids, but I will bust out the axe sooner or later and dust it off. I'm a bit of a geek, as most people know. I had to look up the trumpet itself because I had no idea. There's a bunch of different versions of trumpet. I guess the B trumpet is the basic one. Is that the one you were playing? That's right. That's right. Yeah, there are many. With that said, your first chair on the trumpet seat, how many chairs were there? Oh, there's at least five or six in a typical high school situation. I played in college too, but I think the funny part about this is that I wanted to major in music in college, and my traditional old school immigrant dad was NFW. Yeah, right. <laughs> you're gonna, <laughs> you're gonna be an engineer. Here's the schools you're gonna apply to. Here's what we're gonna do. So he shut that down pretty quick. But I did play. Not I didn't major in music in college, but I did play it all the way through college and. It's something I pass on to my kids now. I've got a five and a nine-year-old. They're not playing the trumpet yet, but they're on piano. So it's a great outlet. I love that. I did look up to some celebrities that play the trumpet. You're pretty good company, Rama. I have Samuel L. Jackson, Steven Tyler from Aerosmith, Prince Charles of England, Shania Twain, and Richard Gere, to name a few trumpet players out there. You beat me at trumpet trivia any day. That's a pretty good list. (laughs) Trumpet (laughs) trivia. Your wife, you mentioned high school sweetheart, which I think is awesome. And that was out in New Jersey, correct? That's right. That's right. You being from New Jersey, is this Jersey Shore, Rama? Like I'm picturing white tank top, tan and all that, or like (laughs) were you off the shore a little bit? Where exactly did you grow up? GTL, Jim yeah. Crow Robert. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Jersey gets a bad rap, but it was an awesome place to grow up, Rami. My parents came to the States in the 60s from India. They came to the Midwest to finish their master's degree and doctorate degrees and made their way east. My dad was a professor, so he taught at Villanova, Penn State, and a number of schools on our way to the East Coast, where he eventually got a job at RCA as an electrical engineer. And we settled there. I grew up in, uh, was born in Chicago, right outside of Chicago in Naperville, Illinois. Moved to New Jersey when I was five years old and grew up there, got married there, had my first job there. So I'm a Jersey guy. I'm Jersey strong. I grew up in Western New Jersey, Central New Jersey. There's a lot of debate whether there is even a Central Jersey, but anybody <laughs> listening to the show, there is a Central Jersey. It's the farm country. It's the Garden State part of New Jersey in a town called White House Station, which is a little bit north of Princeton and there is Central Jersey. I miss it a lot. Like a lot of family still there. A lot of my food preferences and my sports teams all come from New Jersey. So we well, can- I was going to ask you on food, the folks I know from Jersey are passionate about their food and are not shy to give you an opinion. <laughs> Is there anything out here in the Bay Area that can sniff the food out in Jersey? Well, I got to start with some shade that I'm going to throw on California. Yeah, bring it. Sucks out here. <laughs> the pizza? <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah, okay, got it. Oh, no, got I'm it. a huge foodie, but the one thing I really miss about New Jersey and New York is a good old slice, just a slice <laughs> of plain plain cheese pizza. Is there any, anywhere in the Bay Area that can actually put out a good pizza, in your opinion, or not even close? I've done a lot of research on this topic and <laughs> a, a lot of eating. There are two spots. I've done a lot of work on this, Rami. I'm going to unveil some secrets here. There's a guy in San Francisco at 24th and Folsom called the Pizza Shop. You go in there. The first time I went in there, I saw a wooden cutout in New Jersey on the wall, and I knew this was my spot. I love it. I love <laughs> and it. I was looking at the cutout, and the guy goes, where are you from? And I said, all right, this is already going well. Yeah. <laughs> the guy's from Union County, New Jersey, and he's cooking up great pizza there that you can get by the slice. And the other one, now that I've moved down to the peninsula and out of the city, is Speederia. And that's over in Redwood City, and Belmont area, which is a solid, solid pizza. So there's some pizza entrepreneurs out here that I'm not going to completely dismiss. With each and every one of my shows, Rama, I actually 
start out with some standard questions. And the first one, and it's so funny, I have all these questions I'm going to ask you and ask previous guests. This one, for some reason, gets the most response. And it's how do you start your day? I've mentioned before, and listeners know that I have OCD issues. I'm very structured how I start my day. And there's been guests that have been complete maniacs on the other side of what I do and would love for you to share with the listeners how you traditionally start your day. Well, usually it's with my kids screaming or jumping into my bed. Perfect. That's perfect. <laughs> so I wish I had more control over the morning of my life. But no, I'd say that, look, I've never been a morning person. Even in college, I was up all night finishing assignments and exams. I would say that nowadays with two kids at home, I'm busy getting them out the door, doing drop-offs, you know, helping out in the morning since we're both working, both my wife and I are working. But I would say something that I think I started this year out as almost a New Year's resolution was this concept of deep work, Romney, which is inspired by an author, Cal Newport, who's got a book called Deep Work. And the idea is we go through our lives, go through each day, each week, responding to emails, chasing that elusive inbox zero. A lot of times I found myself feeling very busy, but unproductive. I want to feel busy and productive, right? So the idea behind this deep work is, as it sounds, is to kind of schedule some time where you can actually be proactive, read, research. And in my role as a venture capitalist, trying to learn a new subject and stay on my toes, I found this incredibly helpful. So I'll give you an example. I find myself a huge coffee fan. I find myself, once I've gotten the kids at school or at camp, get my first cup of coffee, my brain is just firing on all cylinders. So what I'll do is try to set that, just call it nine o'clock to 10 o'clock, give myself one hour where there's no meetings, no Zooms, no scheduling, where I can go out there and no responding to email. I was listening to last week's pod with Shannon. She said something really interesting was that she looks at her email first thing in the morning to see if there's any fires burning or what she has to kind of do work-wise to get ready for. I do that too. And I'm not sure it's a great habit, but what I really want to do, and I haven't perfected this, is use that hour to really think about what I want to learn about, right? I want to be a great investor in it. AI, machine learning, these are deep. There's a lot of deep science that I'm working in and around. I'd like to use some of that time to get up to speed, find out what's going on out there and be proactive. It's a work in progress, but that's how I'd love my day to be. Is there workout involved in the morning, afternoon at all? Or is that part of the routine? No, I love working out. It gets my head straight. If I can get it done in the morning before the kid's up, I'm on the Peloton or going for a run. But most, most often than not, it's happening at the end of the day for me. I got to find you on Peloton. I'm a Peloton geek as well. So I got to find your handle. I don't know. I might hide from you, Rami. You're <laughs> <laughs> me. On the morning routine, and by the way, listeners, we are talking at 7 a.m. on a Monday. So for you to not say your Monday morning guy, Rami, I think you're a, a little bit of a liar there because you're working your butt off. I am a bit jet lagged from the trip that I just got back. So this is a bit Where'd of an anomaly. So I just got back, Rami, from an amazing trip, friend's 40th birthday party or celebration, I should say, which was the hike in Europe called the Tour du Mont Blanc. This is the tallest wow. peak in Europe. And you essentially hike on foot through three different countries, Switzerland, France, Italy, and you're huffing and puffing 10, 15 miles a day, high elevation. But I will admit this was a little bougie. This was a guided trek where they take your butt bags and your luggage from hut to hut or cottage to cottage. So you're wow. not sleeping on the ground. And you're really working hard during the day to get these great views. But at night, you're kicking back and eating fondue and drinking French wine. So amazing trip. I'd recommend it to everybody out there who's curious about the outdoors. And especially after sitting inside for almost a year and a half, like everyone else has been on Zooms, this was a great time to 
disconnect from the phone and reconnect with old friends. So I am absolutely on French standard time right now. So yes, it's early <laughs> in the morning, but perfect. not for me. This was perfect this today. Perfect. That sounds like an epic trip. I'm sure half that struggle on the walk is the wine you drink the night before and you're just sweating <laughs> that thing out. Right? <laughs> it's oh, true. That's great. Rama, I'm going to jump into the VC world here, if you don't mind. Let's do it. Thank you for the answers on how you start your day. I know you started out your career, at least from what I have gathered, at Cisco Systems. Everyone knows that company for sure, for about seven or so years, and then went to Comcast Ventures, and you've been at Norwest Venture Partners ever since. I want to start with that period at Cisco Systems. Why did you make the jump to venture capital, and or did you have the choice at that moment? I'm just curious. You were at a very high-powered company, obviously, with your pedigree and smarts, you probably had a runway forever at Cisco Systems. But why did you make that jump to venture capital back then? Well, Rami, I got to start with the influence my dad had on my life. From the very beginning, he was always about work ethic and never stopping the education curve, right? He's always learning. Even him came to the US with nothing, got his PhD, became a professor, kept working, went into private sector and worked as an electrical engineer got his real estate license, kept on and kept on learning. It never stopped. And for me, I had graduated with an engineering degree, was working at Cisco in the early 2000s. It was a great place to be. Started my career out in Silicon Valley, moved back to the East Coast as a sales engineer at Cisco. And it was great training. You're basically thrown into the fire in front of customers and expected to be the expert on networking, security, switching, all the things that Cisco does out there. You're presenting to customers, you know, they're angry sometimes. I remember very fondly installing voice over IP phones at Wall Street banks in the early 2000s with traders. And when those phones failed, they were ripping them out of the sockets and throwing them across the room. So it was a high pressure environment. And it really taught me a lot about being prepared and also understanding what customers want. And even to this day, I use that as a North Star when I'm looking at new investments, helping my portfolio companies. And I was getting to that point at Cisco where I'd gone in from a sales engineer to product management, which is great training. You're essentially out there gathering requirements for products, interviewing customers. So again, being very close to customers. And my brother, who was also a great influence in my life, I have an older brother, he's four years older than I. He had gone to Wharton to get his MBA and excel in his career. And he kept asking me, when are you going to go to graduate school? When are you going to go to business school? And I said, ah, that's for finance geeks and wonks. And I never really thought about it. Finally, I put the application in, I got into Wharton and it changed my career. It really changed my career because I'd never taken a finance class in my life. As an engineer, engineering student, when you take statistics, you're essentially sitting there for 60 minutes deriving the formula for standard deviation, as an example, right? I get to Wharton and the professor puts up the formula for standard deviation and says, let's talk about the stock market for 60 minutes, right? (laughs) (laughs) And I feel like now it really embodies my professional life, at least the intersection of both finance and technology, which I'm still both passionate about. And that was my arc into coming into the venture capital business. When I was in Philadelphia, I had the privilege of working with Louis Toth, Dave Zilberman. Deepak Sivani and the crew at Comcast Ventures. It was called Comcast Interactive Capital back then. There's two VC firms at the time in Philadelphia, Comcast Ventures and First Round Capital. So I got an internship at one of them and they had done a lot of work with Norwest from the East Coast back then. And that's how I met 
the great folks at Norwest, Matt Howard, Pramod Hawk, the folks here had a lot of connections to Cisco, which is where I was working before, and kind of used that to parlay a full-time gig. Graduated in 2009, maybe the worst time ever to graduate from business school. I was recruiting <laughs> in the fall of 2008 when yeah. the entire banking industry was coming to a crumble. But that was the entry point for me. I am going to go pretty deep into VC for you, Ram. I'm grilling you today. But before we do that, for the listeners, do you mind high level just explaining exactly what venture capital is? You and I are both sitting out here in Silicon Valley, but I think for the, the listeners that are maybe outside or not so much familiar with what exactly a VC does, that would be very good to hear. And we'll kick that off there. I'll start with a funny story about how my daughter described it one time. She was six years old at home and she was mimicking her mom, my wife, who's a winemaker, which we need to get into. And she was kind of playing and pretending to be mom. And she told my friends who were at my house, oh, I'm going to the winery. I'm going to the winery. And they were all laughing. And then they asked her, what does daddy do? And without skipping a beat, she goes, daddy sells money. <laughs> <laughs> and I went to correct her and I was like, no, that's actually a pretty good summary of what daddy does. So what we do in venture capital is we're a capital provider. We're a capital provider to private companies. If you've ever seen Shark Tank, it's without the drama, it's not too dissimilar when, where we're trying to figure out how much a million dollars or $10 million, how much of a company that could buy. Is it 10% or 20%? And a large part of the job is convincing founders to take our money because it's a very crowded business these days. And the idea is not just to be a capital provider, but to be a value add partner after we invest. So oftentimes we'll take a board seat, we'll roll our sleeves up and help companies with recruiting customer introductions, strategy, hiring, all the things that it takes to build a company. And our job is to be that trusted advisor or that partner to those companies through tough times and great times. And we make money when those companies either get acquired or go public. Our job is to return capital to our limited partners. So we have a fund at Norwest. We're investing currently out of a $2 billion fund. We have LPs, which are limited partners or investors in that fund. Our job is to return money to those limited partners, and we're only successful if and when that happens. Perfect summary, Ron. Appreciate that. So diving deep, education session for listeners coming up on VC. I want to start with about how many pitches do you see in here in a normal month, Rama? Yeah, we actually measure this as a firm. We were telling our companies to be data-driven all the time. So we've gotten very good at drinking our own or eating our own dog food, if you will. We see about 10,000 meetings with companies and founders every year, Rami, and we'll probably invest in about 50 of those, 40 to 50. So there's a big top of funnel and there's not a lot of investments actually coming to fruition out of that top of funnel. Someone told me when I started in this business, you got to kiss a lot of frogs. <laughs> the other thing that's really interesting, Rami, is that the best companies, I've got to go out there and chase them, right? You know, you kind of have this illusion of Shark Tank, as I mentioned, but really the best companies aren't coming to you. And the business has totally changed. The old days of founders coming to Sand Hill Road and kissing the ring are over. Those days are dead. And what happens now in this founder-friendly world is a lot of times it really takes thought and preparation and me thinking about an investment thesis and the hundred companies in that sector going out and meeting as many of them as I can, and then begging to get a meeting with some of those founders and proving to them that I could be their best partner. It's a lot of work that sits behind one actual investment. Yeah, it's so interesting to hear you say that, Rama, because I think myself included, but listeners outside looking in, if you're out here in Silicon Valley, 
venture capitalists are like the rock stars here in the Valley, right? And you kind of look at them and say, oh, you know, they, what you say, kiss the ring. I mean, that was a great analogy. And I'm on the assumption that you're just being pounded with all these companies saying, hey, please listen to me. Please listen to me. It's really interesting to hear that the tides have turned a little bit. You're out digging and trying to find the right company for yourself. That's right. I used to use this analogy until someone reminded me that I've been dating the same woman since high school. But some people use the dating analogy for venture capital. The ones that come to you aren't really the ones you always want to be dating. You really got to go. See, that's my fault, Rama. No, you, you really got to go. Yeah. Yeah, I can tell you that one. <laughs> <laughs> I have no credibility in that subject. Yeah. But no, you're right. I think the game's completely changed comparing where we are today in 2021 to even five to 10 years ago, the tables have completely turned. It's a founder-friendly market. There's a huge imbalance in terms of supply and demand of capital. There's too much capital chasing too few good companies, which results in all these crazy valuations that you can read about in TechCrunch and elsewhere. And it has really made this job harder, but it's also fun. There's a pursuit, there's a chase, which I think makes every day unique. Yeah. I read a quote, Ron Conway, venture capitalist, and he's talking about interviewing a potential prospect to fund. And he said, when you're talking to me in the first minute, I'm thinking, is this person a leader? And I bring up that quote, Rama, to ask the next question, which is when you look to a company or to fund a company, what are some characteristics of that founder or founders that you are looking for? It's a great question because to unpack that, we've really got to understand some of our inherent biases, Rami. So I'm going to give you two parts to this. One is, I think, a timeless answer, which is to take Ron's quote and sort of add to it. Is that person a leader? Do they have the blue flame? Is there evidence in their work, in their experience? It could be just coming out of college. It could be a college dropout. But is there evidence in their body of work that they've got that blue flame, right? Nothing that they're going to kick down doors and walk through walls to whether it be build something or get a sales order or come from a really tough background to get to where they were today? Is there evidence that they really have that blue flame? Because being a founder is tough. You might think that VCs are rock stars, but I think founders are rock stars. They've got, I think, a harder job and they've got to be resilient and okay with failure. So I think that blue flame is number one. Number two, I think, is really around team, right? What I call a yin and yang of founder market fit. So it's sort of a spin on product market fit, which you may have heard of, but is this founder great for what they're trying to do, right? Is there fit for, with their background and what they're trying to tackle? I'll give you an example. Jody Shapiro, who is an old Wharton classmate of mine and a founder that I backed at a company called Productive that is in the SaaS management or SaaS ops space. They basically will help a CIO or a CFO try to manage all the SaaS spending that they've got in their organization, get it in one place, and then actually look and see data that might help them understand whether all that spend is making employees productive or not. What is the productivity increase of all this money I'm spending on, all, on Slack and Zoom and Salesforce and all these SaaS applications? But Jody had perfect founder market fit. He built Google Analytics enterprise product. And essentially what he's doing is building Google Analytics for SaaS. Great example of founder market fit. But the yin and yang is you've got to have someone coming from that product management, product background like Jody, but then also someone who knows not just what to build, but how to build it. And that's where his co-founder Ashish came in with a great technical background, third co-founder Manish with great experience and go to market and really kind of built that founding team. 
So the ability to either have the founding team in place or recruit the founding team, I think is just an absolute table stakes for finding great founders. I think the second part of this is the more recent version of this answer, Rami, which is I think if you look at what makes a great leader, something might pop into all of our heads, right? It might be George Washington, might be pick your favorite president. Odds are it's an old white male. Right? <laughs> yeah. And this is something that we've got to address head on with the inherent biases that we have as capital providers in the venture capital and tech business. When I started in this business, I was always told this is a pattern recognition machine, right? Find folks that fit a certain pattern and you'll be successful. I think that's true, but it also has a downside in which we start backing founders who are white males who've gone to three or four different Ivy League schools and you really narrow your worldview. So I think the more recent version of this question or the answer, I should say, Rami, is that it's all those things I mentioned, the blue flame, the founder market fit, the experience, but it's also thinking about what are some inherent biases that I have when I think about what a leader is or what a great founder is and how do we back more founders as a result that are diverse, more female founders. That's what I look for in a founder. You brought up a very important topic on diversity, Rama. Is there anything that you or Norwest is doing specifically or is it just being more aware of the founders that are coming to you or what you're looking for? I'm just curious if there's something specific that you've pinpointed and said, hey, let's start doing X, Y, and Z to hit that diversity topic. With all the recent historic events, including George Floyd and Black Lives Matter and everything that's happened, it's given us a chance, I think, to think about this and reflect upon it even more. We're taking it head on, Rami. We don't want to be hot air. We don't want to be part of the problem. One of my favorite podcasts, the All In Podcast, which is Jason Calacanis and crew, had a great episode about this maybe a year ago where they talked about the state of venture capital. And Chamath rattled off some great statistics around the mismatch of the demographics of the U.S. and the demographics of the people that we collectively as venture capitalists are funding. He talked about how the U.S. is 60% white, non-Hispanic, it's 13% black, 6% Asian, 19% Hispanic. Now, founders who are getting money from VCs are 77% white, 1% black, 18% Asian, and only 2% Hispanic. Wow. It's just crazy what a mismatch there is in terms of the population at large and where all this capital is going. So we recognize this at Norwest. We are doing our best to improve the situation. And I'll give you some examples. We've got what we call pledge to action at Norwest, and we've published this on our blog and our website. And I'll give you two components of this that we're focused on. So part of it is wiring, right? We have a subgroup called wiring that I'm a co-leader of. And what we're doing in that wiring subgroup is trying to figure out how do we see more companies that are founded by either BIPOC or female founders? And how do we change that funnel of 10,000 companies that I mentioned earlier to make sure that that's more diverse? Because if we don't change that, then we're not going to change the results. So how do we do that? Right? We've invested in seed funds that are led by Black founders and Black entrepreneurs like Serena Williams and Ulu Ventures. Those are two examples where we've actually put our money where our mouth is and invested in those funds. We're also investing in training, right? I think some of those inherent biases I talked about don't just go away. So we're also thinking actively about how do we remove those biases? It's a work in progress. We can't fund those types of businesses if we don't look like those types of businesses. So we're looking at our own hiring practices and reflecting on 
building a more diverse workplace. We've had some small wins in the space. We've backed over 50 female founders, which we're very proud of. And obviously still always a work in progress, but it's something that's near and dear to my heart. And I think the firm has put a lot of wood behind the arrow. That's great, Rama. Thanks for sharing that. It sounds like you guys are doing all the right things. I want to keep going on this, this VC education, for lack of a better term. And my next question to you is, what are common mistakes that founders make when they are pitching? Uh, you do have the benefit of seeing and hearing quite many presentations, I got to assume, and would love to get your feedback on the mistakes that people make when they are doing this pitch to you. Yeah, I would say, Rami, it starts with how you get the meeting, right? And just like anything else, a warm intro is always great. I respond to cold emails, cold DMs, so hit me up. But I think, you know, by and large... <laughs> you just opened uh, up the floodgates there. Right? <laughs> by and large, I think your odds of success in getting the meeting, which is half the battle, is just like anything else. Look for a common connection, look for something to offer, right? Whether it be information about a sector or, or a common relationship. I think once you're in that meeting... The most common thing I see, I work with a lot of technical founders, and the most common thing I'll see is not nailing the problem statement, right? So you might be enthralled about you know the new product you're building or the new mousetrap, but what's broken in the world today that requires this new mousetrap? What's the problem statement? Who's suffering from that problem statement? Why aren't incumbents able to respond to that? And the second part of that is why now? We always ask we debrief and a founder leaves, is this the right time for this company to be successful? We've actually looked back at our own data over 60 years as a firm and looked back at the times when we've been most successful and when we've lost money. And the most common reason is not competition or product features, it's timing. You look back at that company and say, oh man, they were two years too early, right? Or they were one year too late. They missed the timing. And nailing that market timing is the hardest thing for any founder to do, let alone us as VCs to do. When founders in that pitch meeting, it's really about articulating the problem statement. And if you don't grab people by the collar on that, I think you've lost them for the entire pitch. You brought up timing and there was a quote you had in an article by Rep Power in 2018 about timing. And you said, quote you here, I often imagine the same startup approaching me two years ago or even two years from now. What combination of changing market conditions and technological breakthroughs have made now the ideal time for this company to succeed? So I say that when you are looking at this company and you're picturing them, let's just say two years from now, it's 2021, 2023. Is there something that you're seeing in 2023, Rama, that you can say, okay, this does make sense to me? Or are you listening to this founder tell you what's going to make sense to you in 2023? I think it's a combination. You know, I'm not going to claim that we're wizards sitting in the ivory tower predicting <laughs> the future. In fact, right. my training as an SE has really grounded me in keeping in touch with CIOs, chief security officers, customers, IT buyers, because what I focus on is a lot of enterprise software. And I want to hear from them what's missing in the market from big vendors selling them software. So I would say that the thing about timing is what I want to know is what is the unfair advantage this company has by starting today? I'll give you an example. One of our highest flying companies in our Norwest portfolio is a company called Gong, G-O-N-G, as in the sales gong that you would hit, you know, when you get a purchase order. 
And they are the classic example of an applied AI company, applied artificial intelligence company. So they're using NLP and other techniques that are essentially off the shelf AI models these days to solve the problem of inside salespeople calling customers and having a wide range of skills doing that. In other words, you might have a hundred or a thousand people calling customers in an organization. And just like anything else, you're going to have great salespeople and you're going to have weak salespeople. But the old days as a sales manager, you'd walk around and literally plug in a headset next to somebody, one of your employees to help them and listen to them and train them. So first of all, that's just sampling one conversation. And second of all, it really kind of perks up the salesperson to sit up straight and changes their behavior. And what Gong does is use AI to essentially watch what those best salespeople are doing. How much are they talking versus listening? How many times are they mentioning a competitor's name? All that stuff that you could never do manually. And they're using that to train the weakest sales reps to become better. Now, you couldn't do that five years ago, right? You couldn't do that 10 years ago. The technology didn't exist. So it's a perfect example of why now and a company that couldn't be built before and should be built now. So we want to look for those because if there's no great answer to that, that odds are an incumbent or a large company will figure it out with enough people and enough time. Another question for you, because you mentioned the past and the future now a few times. So I'm going to piggyback off that. How do you believe the VC market has changed in the last 10 years and how will it change in the next 10 years? Well, I think the largest change has been the flood of capital. I think there's more capital in the system than ever before. The supply and demand imbalance of just having too much capital chasing too few good companies. Unfortunately, for my sake, I don't think that's going to change. I think the capital, whether it be public markets, international markets, has a taste for technology and a passion for it, which I love. I don't think that's going to stop. So I think the will change, though, is how founders treat venture capital. There's a common parody going around these days, goofing on sort of VCs and investors that often say, how can I help you, right? Or this idea of going to a founder and investing and asking them, let me know how I can help is sort of the old way. It's start helping before you invest, right? The best way to find founders as an investor or curry favor with founders is make introductions to executives they're looking to hire talk to them about what other companies in their sector in the past may have done wrong, right? Sharing those types of stories and those strategies that you can't just look up on Google or Twitter, I think provide sort of an inside baseball view to founders and opening up and helping them grow before they're a portfolio company, right? This was unheard of 10 years ago. You keep all the secrets in house, you let founders in slowly and sort of give them the playbook afterwards. I think that's becoming open sourced, so to speak, right? In terms of how to build a company, how to be a growth hacker, how to get the best SaaS metrics. There's almost too much information out there right now about how to build a company. So the pendulum has swung. And I think where it's going is that the Series A, Series B investing, which is where I focus a lot of my time, is still a very in-demand, high-skill industry. As you get later on, it's getting more of a factory, right? You have hedge funds and crossover funds doing growth rounds. Everybody's in everybody's shorts right now. The seed funds are doing Series A rounds. The hedge funds are doing growth stage rounds. So it's forced me, it's forced Norwest to think about what we're good at. How do we help companies grow? How do we maintain our role as a trusted advisor, not just a check writer? And I think that really kind of puts us in the position of selling ahead of, of the close, right? Really offering a lot of help to founders, genuine help, 
before we actually even become an investor. All that said, it sounds like you use the term open source. This is all to make sure these companies succeed, right? And I say that because you mentioned earlier kind of the hit rate of the companies you see and the companies that you actually fund. And I want to run these statistics by you. Probably you know this already, but for the listeners, this is actually pretty shocking. This was a study by Andreessen Horowitz, very well-known venture capitalist. They did earlier this year. They said in the study that there are approximately 4,000 startups a year that are looking to raise VC money in Silicon Valley. And they, Andreessen Horowitz, see about 3,000 of those. And by the way, I broke that down. If you look at a work year of 50 weeks a year, five days per week, that's 12 companies a day they're looking at, which is mind boggling to me. But side note, so of those 3,000 they screen, Rama, 200 of those companies they look at very seriously. And in the end, they invest in about 20 startups. That's 0.7% of all the companies they look at. I'm digging further. Andreessen Horowitz said the top VCs approximately fund about 200 startups per year. That's in total. So of the 4,000 companies looking for funding, that's about 5% that are funded. I'm going deeper. Then of those 200 startups that are funded, only 15 of them will actually generate nearly all of the economic return, which is just under 8%. So I'm just saying the odds. I'm breaking down this study again. If the odds of being funded are 0.7% and the odds of a funded company succeeding are 8%, then the odds of a VC-backed company being successful are 1 in 2,000 or about 0.05% would love to get your thoughts on that. Again, this is a study I read and then I geeked out on the stats and got the calculator out, but would love your thoughts on that. First thing that comes to mind, Rami, is that line in Dumb and Dumber when he's like, so you're, you're telling, telling me I got a chance. chance. I, know, right? <laughs> <laughs> I love it. <laughs> you know, I think this is what separates your average normal employee or knowledge worker from the crazy people that get into this business, right? I mean, this is why I moved to California. It's the land of opportunity. It's why my parents moved to the US from India with nothing. It's to have a shot, right? And your listeners will kind of fall into two buckets. One that'll hear those statistics and say like, wow, it's a chance in hell. And the others that'll hear that and say, I got a shot. I got a chance. And I think looking at those stats, ours aren't much different. In fact, we're probably seeing more companies than 4,000, as I mentioned earlier, in Norwest, we're doing two things. One is traditional venture capital investing. We're also doing what we call growth equity investing, which is investing in profitable companies that aren't new usually, right? That have some scale. So that's why we're seeing even more companies that are located all over the place that don't look like your traditional venture-backed company too. Iori is a great example of this, which is an awesome sportswear brand. But anyway, the point, Rami, is that if you look at where this is all going, I think there's going to be more founders out there that'll hear these odds and think, I don't have a chance, but there'll be, I think, an even bigger crew that's going to hear this and and look at the success of Zoom and Snowflake and Slack and get inspired by that. You know, the biggest difference I find between working on the East Coast in New York and New Jersey and working in California is that people accept failure here, right? And people accept that if you take a shot, you might fail and that's okay. It's not considered forever on your resume, this thing you can't get rid of. And it's a huge difference. You can't get to those opportunities without failing. And I think that's a completely different mindset 
difference in my experience from the East Coast and the West Coast. There's exceptions, obviously. But in order to get there, you look at those statistics. I'm sure if you interviewed those folks, the number of times they failed to get to that success is probably more times than not. You brought up coast to coast a few times. It's bringing up a COVID question in my head, Rama. And that question is, you read in the newspaper that everyone's fleeing California. Companies don't want to come here anymore. It's too expensive. You can work remote anywhere. You and I both sit here in Silicon Valley and Stanford Research Park from the 1950s on and venture capital on Sand Hill Row has been the epicenter. I still believe it is, but would love your opinion on that newspaper talk or is this still the place to be and to be funded? I think it depends on the sector. First of all, there's great talent and there's great companies everywhere. And as a firm at Norwest, we're investing in the US, in Canada, Europe, India, Israel. We've made investments everywhere out of the same fund. I think, though, that if you look at my area, which is cybersecurity, DevOps, infrastructure software, what used to happen is that all this technology used to come out of the military and research, DARPA, DARPAnet, the beginnings of the internet. Then it shifted to the private sector, and a lot of it came out of Bell Labs in good old New Jersey. you got to go back yeah. to Jersey. <laughs> so it always comes back to Jersey. When I was an intern in college at Bell Labs, they literally had a counter in the lobby an incrementing counter that would go up every time they'd file a patent. And it would just generate that scientists there doing all kinds of research on astronomy and things that led to the cellular networks that we're using today, for example, but all kinds of interesting other projects. Nowadays, all the innovation in my sector is coming from companies like Uber, Airbnb, Google, Facebook. I'm not talking about like just serving ads on news feeds. I'm talking about data analytics or streaming or machine learning, all the stuff that is the ingredients behind the next generation of companies that is taken off the shelf, like I was talking about with Gong, all those things are becoming, you know, look at Confluent. That was a public company today, open source project called Kafka that came out of LinkedIn, right? LinkedIn. And guess what? All those companies are in the Bay Area or headquartered in the Bay Area. Now they've got a lot of talent outside the Bay Area as well. But there's certainly an epicenter here. I think what's funny about the migration out of California, which I think is a bit overreported, is that folks haven't until this summer realized how hot and muggy it is in Miami. So I, <laughs> I see some people coming back from Miami, but I do think it'll stay. It's a pendulum. I think it'll swing back a little bit. I'm on the board of a company called Influx Data, which is an open source time series database company that's completely distributed, which is great in an open source DevOps developer type company. Productive, which I mentioned earlier, is headquartered here, has an office in Seattle. So I see this sort of headquarter with distributed workforce, maybe even hubs in certain cities. You're the real estate guy, but I think the idea of just one office and everybody coming to that office five days a week, even for our own business at Norwest, is going to be completely changed. I have to ask a venture capitalist this question. Shoulda, woulda, coulda. Is there a company that pitched you either last week, years ago, that you did not invest in and went, damn, I should. <laughs> Is there one out there or, or a couple? Yep. Yeah. Oh, boy. Yeah. I mean, we call this the anti-portfolio or the, uh, <laughs> the wall of shame sometimes. Yeah, I love it. Um, if you're in this business long enough, you're going to have a handful of these at least. I think the one that sticks out to me is probably Datadog, a wildly successful company founder came to meet me here in the office in Palo Alto. And this is a great example of bad pattern recognition, right? I had, you know, this is a French founder with not your typical Silicon Valley work experience. 
And despite having a great idea, I didn't see that pattern recognition. And I've since learned that sometimes you've got to look past just the normal patterns and look for that blue flame, look for a large market opportunity and someone who's great at sales. I think even I've been talking about how my job comes down to sales. The best founders are great salespeople. They're selling their product. They're selling their, the value of their equity when they're, doing, when they're hiring. They're selling their company ultimately at the end of the day. So the greatest founders, I think, have that inherent sales skill or sales ability. And I certainly miss that. I miss that one. Well, to your point, I mean, if you're playing the game, you're going to lose a couple, right? And I'm just curious because that's something I assume you call it the wall of shame, which is is pretty funny to say that. But you're you're in the game, Rama. So those are going to happen. I want to switch gears into some rapid fire questions. I grill you on the VC stuff, and I know the listeners are going to eat that up, Rama, and I really appreciate it. But I'd like to end the show with some rapid-fire questions. If you're down, let's go. Let's do it. Okay. The first one is your walk-up song. Major League Baseball players, they have a walk-up song when they go up to the plate, bat in their hand to get them pumped up. And I'm curious, Rama, what your walk-up song would be. This is easy. It's Biggie, Hypnotize. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Back to Jersey. I mean, <laughs> East I grew Coast. Up in, I grew up in the 90s, 80s and 90s in the East Coast with the East Coast, West Coast rap wars. And, you know, I'm Biggie, a Biggie to death. I hypnotize, in fact, so deep that when my wife and I walked out on our wedding day to our reception, we walked out to Biggie, Hypnotize. Yeah, he did. So. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Oh, I love that. Oh, that's a great answer. You can have your Frank Sinatra and uh, (laughs) your typical (laughs) wedding songs, but um, give me Biggie. (laughs) That's great. Uh, All right. Next one. What is one thing that you, Rama, do not mind spending money on? Hmm. I would say travel. I don't mind spending money on experiences. I've taken my kids to India, Italy, France. had the privilege to do that. I should acknowledge. And the travel bug and the exploration bug that my parents seated in me when I always look back at their experience coming to a totally different country without iPhones and without information in hand, exploring and sort of that constant excitement as I just came back from that Tour du Mont Blanc. Travel is absolutely the the thing that I absolutely love indulging in. Okay. Next one for you, Rama. Favorite quote or quotes? I think I spat off a couple of VC quotes today, but do you have any quotes, Rama, that stick with you, either motivational or just daily? Wow, I have a couple. I'll give you one funny one and <laughs> one serious one. My dad, in his ever nonstop effort to make sure that I had work ethic instilled in me, would always quote that Dunkin' Donuts commercial, Time to Make the Donuts. <laughs> you might not have seen this one on the West Coast, but the guy wakes up at 4 a.m. and says, Time to Make the Donuts. And it was my dad's way of saying, Look, party's over. It's time yeah, to go to work. Go. I like that. And the other one is probably what Gandhi said, which my mom was always quoting or being inspired by, which is be the change you want to see in the world. Don't wait for it. Take it in your hands and be the change that you want to see out there. Yeah, which is somewhat ironic given you being in the VC world. That's exactly what you're doing, which is great. Favorite sport? Hoops. Basketball. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Now, are you a Nets guy or are you Warriors since you're out here? Like, where's your... It's complicated. You know, I, got, I, got a, <laughs> I grew up a big Nets and Knicks fan. I grew up in the Patrick Ewing, John Starks, Charles Oakley era of the Knicks. I was a huge New York sports fan growing up. But I've lived in the Bay Area for almost 20 years. So I've, I've definitely jumped on the Golden State bandwagon, even before Steph Curry, for what it's worth. No, it's the one sport I can't watch enough or play enough. I'm in a 
fun dad's league on Sunday here in the Bay area with a bunch of middle-aged men who think they're still in their twenties yeah, <laughs> trying to hand, hoop it up. Hamstring pull central right there. That's all I hear. <laughs> it is. It absolutely is. <laughs> uh, but that's, that's my, that's my passion. All right. Next one, Rama, if you could choose and I'll take tech and VC, I'll pick those two. If you could choose a completely different position, take out tech and VC, what would it be and why? I'll give you two. I think one would be a basketball coach. I'll stay on the basketball theme. I'd love to be in and around that game forever. So I think coaching and passing that on to younger kids would be a lot of fun. And I also think some of the work I've done in my personal life with nonprofits like Year Up, which is an organization in San Francisco that I mentored disadvantaged youth from all over the place to, to spend a year getting trained and getting skills in order to get internships at tech companies and then find a route into the professional world is an example of a company that I would love to spend more time with. If I took tech and VC out of this altogether, I'd love to devote my time and energy to. Love that answer. But I thought you were going to say at the top of the hour, you mentioned your wife in winemaking. Yes. I was not going to let that go because I do love <laughs> my wine. I want to hear a little bit about that, Rama. It's an amazing story, Rami. She, as I mentioned earlier, grew up in music and in and around music. She actually went the whole nine yards and got her master's in music performance at NYU, was way better at her instrument, which was flute and piccolo than I was or am at trumpet. Do you, do you guys ever have like a jam session with the trumpet and flute? We do. I just, try nice. to, you know, I just try to play as loud as I can so you yeah. can hear how, how good she is. <laughs> I love it. When I moved to California for my job at Cisco, she switched careers entirely. So she went um, and started working in a tasting room, loved the geeky parts of wine, the science, the combination of art and science that is wine and winemaking. When I went to business school at Wharton, she went back to school at Fresno State for enology and viticulture, plant science, chemistry. And today she's worked her way up from cellar rat to full-time winemaker. And she recently launched her own label called Ottavino, which going back to her music origins is an Italian word for small flute, but also has a nice alliteration of wine and vino in the name. I would love to say that my other role would be winemaker, but I'd probably be a better barrel washer than a <laughs> winemaker, which is important. So as we think about retirement one day, we'll be sitting on a vineyard, I'll be washing barrels and she'll be making wine. Well, and don't forget, I'm a wine drinker, Rama. So I'd <laughs> love to be invited in one of those. One you of bet, those you bet. All right, next question, Rama. What would you do if you were given a free 60 second advertisement slot during a Super Bowl game? It's the biggest audience you can get for TV that I guess one day a year, what would you say or do? Wow, this is an amazing question, Rami. Super Bowl, hopefully my New York Giants are playing in that Super Bowl, <laughs> first of all. It is a fantasy question, so I guess we could say the Giants are in there, sure. Right. That's fine. <laughs> One of the things that I take a lot of pride in is just being empathetic to other people, right? And going back to the quotes, the other one that always sticks in my mind is everyone you meet is fighting a battle you know nothing about. And as you think about the people you interact with every day at the Starbucks or in the office or wherever it might be, I would make a commercial that showed people being rude to each other, coming up from New Jersey, you know, giving them the Jersey salute in the, uh, in the car yep. Yep. or not holding a door for somebody and then following the so-called victim of that, right? And showing what they might be going through, right? And then the opposite, right? Whether you could hold the door open for someone or give someone an extra big tip, what that 
might mean to them in their own personal lives and the struggle that they're going through. And I think it might just open some eyes, right, into sort of the impact that you can have with small gestures, right? We're all fighting some battle, all of us, and some harder than others. And I think just reminding people that they can make a difference. Great answer. Next one. You were stranded on an island and you can pick any celebrity, dead or alive, to be on that island with you. Who would you pick and why? Oh, this is easy. Chris Farley. Chris Farley. Oh, that's a good one. That's a good one. He was a comedic hero of mine. I love comedy and stand up. And I was a huge Saturday Night Live fan growing up. I think I've got every line of Tommy Boy memorized <laughs> at this point. So I would say Chris Farley. Maybe Adam Sandler is a close second, but I think Chris, since he's no longer with us, would be an amazing, amazing yeah, one to sure. hang out with. My buddies and I this last weekend, I don't know how it came up, but that skit he did with Patrick Swayze and Saturday Night Live. <laughs> with the, oh my God. Did you reenact it? Is that what happened? No, we did not reenact it. No, <laughs> we definitely did not reenact it, but that's an iconic SNL skit. That guy was amazing. He really was. So special. <laughs> it's a good pick. Okay. Last question for you, Rama. Call it the ultimate dinner question. We don't know what's happening tomorrow. There's no consequences. How about that? But what is on your plate or plates for dinner, Rama? And what is in the glass if you'd like something in the glass? Wow. The ultimate dinner. I would say, all right, I can't pick one because I love food, but anything that single thread up in Healdsburg is putting in front of me, I would I would devour. That that place is amazing. If you haven't been on the old school side, a New Jersey slice. <laughs> just give me a great Jersey slice of pizza, a glass of Pinot. I'm going to say my wife's Otavino Pinot for dessert. Can't forget about dessert. My mom's chocolate chip cookies. I've known, I'm known as a cookie monster in our house. Cookies don't survive nice. very long. <laughs> yeah, I like so it. That, that would be the great, that would be the best ultimate meal. So you me. threw out some shout outs from San Francisco pizza spots. Is there a Jersey spot that you go get the slice at or is it, it doesn't matter. It's everything's good in Jersey. There are a lot of good spots. I would say in New York, for instance, Joe's Pizzeria, Bleecker is amazing. I would say I go wild every time I go to New York because I'm usually downing like four or five slices a day. I <laughs> <laughs> uh, love it. Rama, this was a great hour. Thank you so much. I knew it would be fun and it was a blast for me. And I know the listeners, when they hear, not a lot of people get to dive deep into how VCs think. Right. And so I really appreciate you letting me grill you a little bit on some questions that maybe you don't get because people are ready to present to you and they show up and throw up and they get out. So appreciate you giving some insight there. Is there anything you'd like to leave the listeners with before we part ways? Well, first, man, congrats on this show. I'm a big fan of the pod. I think you're perfect for this. You found your, <laughs> your calling. I can't wait to see where this all goes. And I would say to the listeners, reach out to me if you're a founder, especially if you're in the DevOps, cybersecurity, enterprise software space. I'd love to hear from you on Twitter. I'm VC Rama. Hit me up. Rami, I just wish you the best and hope that I could be a small part of the success of the pod. Love it. Thank you, Rama. You're welcome. Thanks. Thanks, everyone, for listening. And I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Rama Shaker. You can find Rama on LinkedIn or at Norwest Venture Partners, which is just www.nvp.com. And you can find me at my website, ramize.com. And that's R-O-M-Y-Z-E-I-D.com. Thanks again for listening, everyone. And I hope you all learned 
something interesting. <laughs>